You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Monster Talk is supported by listeners like you. Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. One of the most satisfying aspects of researching monsters is when you can find interesting facts that have become the focus of legend. For reasons I still don't understand, some historical characters seem to accrete legends the way old houses collect spider webs. Such is the case with this week's subject matter. Perhaps the most legendary character of Quebec history, yet based on a very real person. She had a full name and a short life, but her afterlife has been lengthy and fecund, giving birth to many, many legends. Was she a witch? Was she a murderer? Poisoner? Hey, let's stop being cagey. We're going to talk about Le Corveau. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. A really fun thing about creating Monster Talk is I get to learn stuff. If I'm being honest, if I'm being honest, in many ways, the selfish motive force of this show is my insatiable curiosity about the macabre and the monstrous. Monster Talk gets me in touch with people who've done deep research on topics that I've often never even heard of before some listeners suggest them as an episode topic. And such is the case with today's subject, the woman they call Le Corveau. Legends say she killed as many as 20 husbands, that she was a witch, that she was a poisoner, that she consulted with werewolves and other dark forces, that she would come back from beyond the grave and do harm. But behind all that is an interesting historical study of a woman, a suspicious death, and the metal cage they call the gibbet. Our guest today is historian Joseph Gagné. And check out the show notes. In addition to the links to additional research material, he also provided some photos relevant to the story of this notorious figure of Quebec history. Monster Dog. 
we're going to be talking about an interesting character. But first, let's find about you as an interesting character. Who are you, Joseph Gagne? I am the one, the only, the irreplaceable Joseph Gagne. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I'm I'm actually a doctoral student at Laval University in Quebec City. Uh, I'm originally from Northern Ontario, uh, and I'm French-Canadian, despite the goofy Northern Ontario accent. Hey, is that your friend in the wood chipper there? Uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, and I, I, and I specialize in uh, the Seven Years' War, so that's basically the uh, French and Indian War for Americans, that uh, uh, lovely period of uh, of uh, nine years, don't do the math, uh, uh, that uh, preceded the American Revolution. So, basically, there would be no Re- American Revolution without the French and Indian War. And so, uh, I'm currently working on, uh, uh, my doctoral thesis is, uh, is, uh, studying military intelligence within the French army. So everything having to do with spies and, and, uh, gathering information on the enemy. Wow. Interesting. That is interesting. I wish we had time to go into that. <laughs> <laughs> another day. Another day. Does, does yeah, anybody, episode. I, so the French and Indian, the seven years, does anybody call it the Frindian war? <laughs> no, but I've, I've once seen a, a cartoon where they uh, they had uh, 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 the Americans going, "Oh no, it's the French po- uh, French poodle and Indian War." <laughs> it's a, a, we. I like history, but uh, and we do get into it occasionally. And I guess we'll be about to get into it a little bit. Does this topic have anything to do with war? Honestly, a- absolutely. There is there is uh, there is a context. Uh, absolutely, with that period. Um. First of all, I think like the, the the best way to start is a is to kind of back up with with what the actual story is because the 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 irony is that this is a very well known story uh, in French Canada without necessarily being accurately known, but and outside of French Canada, most people will have heard of it uh, probably thanks to the uh, the TV show a few years ago, Creepy Canada. Uh, La Corriveau story actually made the top 10 scariest, uh, Canadian, uh, ghost stories. Creepy Canada. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, I, I forget if it was like late nineties, early two thousands. Uh, I'll have to track it yeah. down. That sounds awesome. So yeah. And it, um, I was, uh, I was doing some research on this topic and it just seems like we've got the English language scoop on the story by and large, because there's just not very much out there, but I did discover that there was a, uh, a heavy metal band by the same name. I believe so. Yes, uh, they're definitely good. <laughs> through, through through the magic of editing, I don't think anybody knows who we're talking about yet. I don't think they do either. No. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're being mysterious about it. So, <laughs> La Corriveau and uh, Joseph, if you could give us her full name. Oh, her full name is Marie Joseph Corriveau. Um, and so wait, basically, wait, does that make her Mary Joe Corriveau? I, I guess so, really, when you think about it. <laughs> I think that sounds like a, an Appalachian story uh, <laughs> from a previous episode. All right, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Which I'm actually uh, halfway listening to right now. All right. Well, you should wait till we get done with this interview. That's my advice. So, <laughs> All right, perfect. Uh, okay, but, well, I think we better ask the big question. Who is she? Well, Marie-Joseph Corriveau. It was traditionally regarded as a witch in French Canadian folklore. She was said to be a woman that basically would murder her husbands and finally got caught 
there are hundreds of versions of, of her story. The the more, most traditionally she she killed two of her husbands, but you have some versions where she had over twelve, where she killed each one in a more sordid manner, one fr- uh, one after another, whether poison, stabbing, strangling. Uh, one of the weirder ones, just basically taking a pillow and sitting on on her her last husband's face. And the idea was that she was a witch who would be peddling in in love potions and poisonous brew and so on. And she finally gets caught and she was punished. And depending on the, on the version you hear, either she was executed by hanging and then placed in a gibbet or she was squarely put in a gibbet left to die hanging. And then after her death. Uh, she would basically be haunting the South shore of Quebec of the Quebec region. And you would actually have parents telling their kids, come home, uh, come home early or else that Corriveau will get you, uh, which, and these stories still circulate to this day. And uh, what, what I find fascinating as well is that I'm French Canadian, but I'm from the next province over. I'm from Ontario. And e- as a kid, even I had heard of this story. This is how infamous it is uh, uh, in uh, French Canadian society. Are there a lot of French Canadian ghost stories? You mentioned Creepy Canada. So I, obviously yeah. they had to flesh out a whole season. <laughs> At least. Did, did, they, they, did they hit like uh, uh, the Wendigo or like what, what kind of things did they cover? If you don't mind me asking about oh, it, a TV show. Uh, well, as, as for the TV show, uh, they surprisingly had very little French-Canadian folklore. They tended to try to cover Canada from coast to coast. So you have you would have uh, stories from haunted lighthouses in the Maritimes to uh, strange disappearances uh, in Ontario and, and so on. I don't recall there being that many monster stories, unfortunately, but it was oh. a lot of like gray ladies haunting buildings and yeah, so on. Lame. Yeah. Oh, I like those. Oh, I want to hear about La Poutine. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, good on you for uh, saying it more or less correctly. Some people will say, like, we'll we'll actually just stretch it out like poutine. And it's like, no, no, poutine. It's like, (laughs) just just spit it out. All I know is it's it's what's for breakfast is what I know. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, you you can have it in Quebec. You can have it for breakfast. There's a place that's uh, open 24 hours. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, they have it in, in... you know, I, this is really a weird tangent, but they they have it in uh, Detroit too. You can get it at what they, they like what we would call a, a kind of a diner or a greasy spoon. They call a uh, Coney Island, and so they yeah, you know yeah. hot dogs, chili, but uh, you can get poutine in most of those places. It's a good deal. Anyway, Actually, sorry. Uh, fun fact: uh, Detroit used to be French. A lot of people don't know that. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, I knew that because we've talked about the. Uh, the werewolf of uh, Gross Point and a few other things related to yeah. that. And then, of course, we still haven't covered, but I owe us uh, an episode on uh, Nain Rouge. Uh, yes, indeed. Yes, yeah, indeed. So, uh, so many fun things in that whole area there. But how did you get an interest in La Corvo? Well, it was it was a nice a nice coincidence where I was originally interested by it as a kid because it the imagery is quite lively when you think of a woman punished by being put in a cage or a gibbet so that that already struck my imagination as a kid when i, I would uh, when we would read about her story in our in our textbooks in elementary school but later on uh, as i became uh, a specialist of the french regime in north america specifically the seven years war well 
turns out that the, the, the true story happens in the year 1763, which is the end of the French and Indian War. That's where the real story gets uh, fascinating. If we backtrack with her life, essentially very little is known of uh, Marie-Joseph herself, besides the fact that she was born in 1733. So that would make her roughly 30, uh, 30 years old uh, when she was executed. She had gotten married at the age of 16 to her first husband, uh, Charles Bouchard, Charles Bouchard if, uh, <laughs> with the English pronunciation. As far as we know, uh, they had a happy marriage. They had three children, two daughters and one son. But he uh, eventually... Uh, he, he eventually passed away in uh, the 1750s, I believe, from what seems to have been smallpox or some disease that caused a, a great fever. So that kind of breaks that first part of the legend where she would kill all her husbands one after another. But where it gets interesting is that uh, she remarries shortly after. She marries her neighbor, Louis oh. Dazier, on July 20th, 1761. And things go off on a rocky start. First of all, we're talking about the 1760s, the early 1760s, when, just to recap everyone's history, uh, you have French North America, the, the, uh, uh, the colony of New France, which stretches roughly across two-thirds of the continent. A lot of Americans don't realize the American Midwest was very much French. Uh, just look at your geography. You have... Grand Rapids, Michigan, and Grand Rapids, uh, Green Bay was actually Bay Verte. All these French names you can find around uh, in the American Midwest all the way down to Louisiana. Now, uh, through war and diplomacy, uh, that whole territory ended up being carved up between Great Britain and Spain. Now, Canada was conquered by the British uh, in 1760 when they took Montreal. And so... When La Corriveau gets married in 1761, the colony had been British for a year. And so everyone is uncertain. Is the colony going to remain British? Is France going to get it back through diplomatic negotiations? No one knows for now. But in the meantime, she, she gets married and her husband turns out seems to be, uh, unfortunately quite violent. Uh, and her, her father, would regularly get uh, into spats with him and they they would actually get quite public people would be uh, would be talking uh, about these uh, these run-ins between the the, uh, the two men but worse than that was that Marie Joseph would actually talk to british soldiers and try to seduce them or offer them anything they wanted in exchange for beating up her husband to give him a lesson and t until finally in uh, January of 17, uh, January 1763, the 28-year-old Dudzie is found dead in his barn, supposedly trampled by a horse. Now, at first, no one makes anything of it. They bury his body immediately, but that's probably what, uh, uh, what brought up suspicions was how quickly... Uh, the family buried the body. Uh, usually in, in uh, uh, French Canadian society back then, they would wait two or three days before burying it. And so people were starting to whisper that this might have been a murder. And sure enough, days later. Are, are you saying that murder is beating a horse death? 
<laughs> Actually, this was the, the reverse. The the the, the <laughs> alibi was that the horse beat the guy to death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, I'm saying in the popularity, though, I think she's uh, <laughs> like like true. Oh, a murder is much more exciting. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it you know, like if it was death like uh... chickens, you could have said this was murder most foul. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like these uh, two deaths are unrelated. They're, like they're unrelated, that. yes, indeed. Contrary to the, uh, the legend, the folklore, yes. Well, aren't mm-hmm. they related by marriage? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is that, yes. yes. In uh, February of that same year, basically there was a military tribunal that was brought about, military court, investigate uh, the death. because uh, So Louis Dozier was dug up, his body re-examined. Sergeant George Fraser of the Fraser's Highlanders had examined the body, and in, in his report, he wrote, and I'm quoting, Upon examining the body of Louis Dudzier, I found two wounds in his face, one near his upper lip, which penetrated through the flesh and upper jaw, the other wound a little before the eye, which was about four inches deep, two other wounds on the left side of his head, which fractured his skull. His lower jaw was fractured without a wound. The wounds on his face and head were about three inches from each other. I am of the opinion that those wounds were the cause of the man's death. Signed, George Fraser, 14th February, 1763. And so uh, the court decided that there was a murder, and so they tried uh, both Marie-Joseph and her father, Joseph, because he was the one who had the reputation of getting into fights constantly with his uh, new son-in-law. And so they, didn't, uh, they didn't investigate the first death? They didn't revisit that? No, the, the first death was uh, admitted as being a, a natural cause. The uh, priest okay. attested to it. So basically at the end of the tribunal, the autopsy was in February, but the first tribunal was in March, uh, March 29th to April 9th. So on April 9th, uh, the military co- court concluded that uh, a murder had been committed and that it was uh, Marie-Joseph's father's fault, Joseph. And so he was set to be hanged on the 15th. Uh, wow. And what's interesting is that she was uh, also seen as, as being part of the, uh, of the murder. So as uh, uh, to quote the, the, docu- the period document, the court is likewise of opinion that Marie-Joseph Corriveau, his daughter, Widow uh, Louis Helena Helena Dudzier is guilty of knowing of said murder and doth therefore adjudge her to receive 60 lashes with a cat and nine tails upon her bare back at three different places vis-a-vis under gallows upon the marketplace of Quebec and in the parish of Saint-Vallier, 20 lashes at each place and branded on the left hand with the letter M and the letter M for murderer. Yeah. Now, there's a giant twist in the story is that her father is set to be executed on the 15th of April. Now, just before his execution, he ends up speaking with father Glapion, who was the superior of the Jesuits in Quebec city. And almost like an Alfred Hitchcock twist, he confesses that he didn't commit the murder, but he didn't want to go to hell for basically committing suicide through lying. Ah. And so uh, Father Glapion is now stuck with the choice of uh, of revealing what was told to him 
or leaving an innocent man uh, be executed. And so he obviously tells uh, the local authorities. And so there's a new trial altogether, which takes place April 15th, ironically, the day that, that Joseph was supposed to be executed. And they immediately lay the blame on Marie-Joseph. Confession is given and so on. And mm-hmm. she is set to be executed three days later on the 18th. Mm-hmm. And so she is, she was to be executed on the Plains of Abraham, which are now famous for having been the setting of the battle for the city of Quebec in 1759. The famous one where both generals died, Montcalm and Wolfe. Very famous in, in Canadian history, even though technically it's a year later in Montreal that Canada gets lost to the British altogether. But point is, uh, she's set to be executed on the plains and once dead, her body was to be placed in a gibbet and exposed on the South shore of Quebec in the, what is now the city of Lévis with just across the river. So just so people uh, have a mental image of how the region looks geographically is that you have the city of Quebec and there's the St. Lawrence and right, uh, South, uh, on the South shore of the St. Lawrence is the city of, of Lévis that ends in a, in a point as the river turns northwards towards the ocean. And it's on that point that the cage, uh, the gibbet was exhibited because it was a perfect spot where you could see back, uh, back in the day, you could actually see it from both sides of the shore and anyone coming from villages down the river would come up to the city and see the cage. Very gruesome. And, yeah. Very gruesome. Well, I guess the now, point is it's, it's it does have a deterrent effect to... That was the idea. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But this is where it becomes fascinating. It's it, because this was seen as particularly gruesome by the locals. Now, mind you... And smelly, I imagine. It, yes, yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> for a while. Because the body was left there for 42 days, which mm-hmm. was actually short. And let me explain. It's that... Uh, traditionally, in under French law uh, in the colony, you would punish criminals with uh, hanging or for particularly nasty crimes. They would be executed with the wheel. Now, it's not the the wheel you're thinking of uh, the the medieval the medieval uh, stretching wheel where you're strapped oh. and they just basically stretch your limbs. No, this is mm-hmm. the wheel where they would strap you on a big on a on a big wagon wheel and break every bone in your body with an iron mass and be- basically let the birds peck you to death. So th- there were there were gruesome punishments in New France. Uh, the other very gruesome one is for suicides. You would actually have your body dragged uh, all the way to the public market, face down, and then uh, exposed to public infamy. Wait a minute! Like after you've committed suicide, they dragged you and then put you on uh, public display. Yeah, on display. Basically, look at the coward who took his own life. But if they dragged you face down, wouldn't you be pretty much unrecognizable? Mm. There are many strange <laughs> persons. <laughs> in, in, I in found theory. a hole in their plan. Is what I'm saying. Period. Law. Yeah. I thought they were just buried at crossroads. <laughs> People oh, sometimes they would, be, they, uh, they would just be abandoned in, a, in a, an unclaimed field. Wow. Uh, but point is that uh, these criminals would be exposed at, at crossroads or in public markets and so on, but usually just hanging off of a rope. That's about it. But the British had their punishment looked particularly gruesome because of the iron cage, the gibbet. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was the extra added uh, uh, creepy factor for the locals because uh, even though uh, gib- uh, gibbets had been more or less common in France as well, 
by that period in the eight, in the 18th century, it, it wasn't common anymore and it was never really brought into the colonies as a practice. Mm-hmm. So this kind of stuck to people's minds. And in fact, what, what's also interesting is that La Corriveau was not the first person put in a gibbet. There's actually a uh, French soldier in 1761 that had been caught by the British after a quadruple murder and also put in a gibbet and also inspired his own legend. Uh, but that's probably a story for another day. All in all, the reason why La Corriveau's case is fascinating is because, remember, we're at the end of the war, and in February of 1763, a peace treaty is signed uh, with uh, between France and Great Britain. And so the war is over, and they also confirm that Canada will remain uh, 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 British. And so the temporary governor of Canada, James Murray, figures, oh, crap. I got to make friends real quick. And so he, at, he orders, uh, uh, the, the cage to be buried. And that's why, even though to us, it would seem inhumane seeing this body for 42 days, it was technically really short. Usually bodies were exposed until they would just completely fall apart and there was nothing left to expose. And so that's particular. And that brings us to the second part of her story. Because the cage disappears for about a hundred years until 1849 or 1851. We're, we're not sure it's, it's between those, those dates. People were renovating the cemetery in Levy. And as they were digging up, as I recall, I believe they're trying to make the wall wider. And as they were removing stones, they, uh, they stumbled on the cage, which back in the day would have been buried outside of the cemetery. They stumble on the cage. And all of a sudden people are talking about this. And, uh, this is in a period of time where people still had memories of their grandparents and and they would say, Oh, my, my grandmother, my grandfather told me about this lady that was in a cage and, and a gibbet that was exhibited. And then people start talking about the story and Mm -hmm. also fascinating is that this is a period in time where, uh, 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 Quebec, uh, intellectuals are obsessed with writing the history of the province are obsessed with writing down the folklore. We're speaking of ethnography. Uh, this was a movement that we're seeing in Europe and the U S uh, j- just think of the, uh, the, bo- uh, the brothers Grimm, for example, just writing down all those old folk tales. So her, di- the discovery of her cage happens in that precise, uh, movement, uh, in the intellectual world. And so many writers latch onto her story and start telling their own versions. And from then on, other people would tell a story and it was snowball with details and so on to the point where people didn't even believe her story was true. But as for the cage, the cage disappears yet again. And I'll let you guess where it went. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day. Couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. 
So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Was it, was it still in Canada? Not at all. It made its way to Montreal. Basically, people were uh, encouraging people to come and visit and give a small amount of money. And uh, they eventually sold it to P.T. Barnum. Oh, wow. Made its way you know, to that... Barnum's museum. <laughs> that would have yeah. been my only guess. That's really funny. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but of course, let's uh, we as we recall... P.T. Uh, Barnum's museum burns down in 1865 in New York. Uh, and so for the longest time, many people thought the cage had uh, had been destroyed in that fire. Even though there are rumors going about that uh, the cage had been seen, uh, the gibbet rather, had been seen at the Boston Museum. That apparently uh, P.T. Barnum had lent or rented the, the, the cage to, I forget the name of the owner of the Boston Museum, but that it was there. Until finally it made its way in none other than Salem, Massachusetts. Really? Absolutely. Why? It essentially just uh, ended up in the collections of the uh, uh, the Peabody Essex Museum. And I'm sure people in Massachusetts are screaming, saying it's not how you pronounce the museum's name. Things <laughs> like Peabody or something like that. So please forgive me. People from Salem and Massachusetts, I <laughs> I admit I don't so, know how to pronounce that museum. So is it still there today? Can you see it today? Well, back in 2011, researchers on the internet, I believe it was Vicky Lapointe, had mentioned that the New York Public Library had a bunch of black and white photographs that had to do with Quebec history. And the president of the Levy Historical Association stumbled on a black and white photograph and the description of the gibbet in the photograph was gibbet having contained the widow Dudzier. That's an oddly specific detail because your average person only knows the name Corriveau and anyone familiar with the true facts of her story immediately recognized, wait a minute, the, the widow Dudzier, that is, La Corriveau's gibbet. And so, uh, as the rumor was running, uh, running amok on Facebook, uh, that the cage possibly still existed at the Peabody Essex museum, because the photograph also said, uh, picture taken 1730s in, uh, uh, in Salem at the Peabody Essex museum. I actually called up the museum to ask them if they had, uh, if they still had the gibbet. And a few days later, they contacted me back and confirmed that they had it. And by the time I was supposed to go down and see the cage, because just a little side note for uh, any of your listeners that, that, that read French and want to know more about this cage uh, and the story of La Corriveau, two friends of mine, two wonderful friends of mine, uh, Catherine Ferland and Dave Corriveau wrote the definitive biography of Marie-Joseph's life and how her legend just snowballed into infamy. And as they were writing... 
I contacted them about the cage and we were set to actually travel to Salem to see the cage until the last minute, the museum contacted us and said, "Never mind, we're actually shipping it to Quebec because (laughs) now that they knew the infamy of this collection piece they had in their museum, they immediately contacted the Museum of Civilizations in Quebec and they had their best specialist take a look at the cage. And I am happy to say Uh, officially as of last year, the gibbet is now back in Quebec where it belongs with its legend and infamy. But they they did confirm for sure it was hers though, right? The paperwork indicates it. And so far, nothing seems to contradict the, uh, the, 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 uh, the cage's identity. Everything sticks, the timeline, the, the paperwork, uh, the paper trail. Metallurgically, now that the museum actually owns the cage, uh, because they, they have the, the, the museum civilization did have to basically make a case that the cage was authentic before the, the Peabody Essex agreed to donate it. Uh, and now that they do possess it, they want to push their analysis, uh, see if there's anything metallurgical they, uh, they can get out of it. But, uh, so far all the circumstantial evidence, evidence fits with the, uh, the gibbet. And it's actually, uh, one of the only two authentic gibbets in North America. So you, would you say that? After wrestling with that question, it's a steel cage match. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> so, Joseph, did you did you finally get to see it? I did. I did. I I was very fortunate. Every time it's been uh, exhibited uh, to the public or for scientific scrutiny, I've found a way uh, of seeing it. And in fact, if anyone is visiting Quebec between now and the end of January. Uh, the cages, uh, the gibbet is actually currently exhibited at our Museum of Civilizations, along with all the best pieces of the collections. Uh, there's a wonderful exhibit. It's basically curators' favorite pieces, uh, and the cage is, uh, is right in there, right in the back, with all of the artifacts having to do with uh, uh, crime and murder. Uh, now, you might be wondering why is the cage temporarily uh, exhibited? It's basically because of its infamy, ironically. Because let's not forget that uh, Marie-Joseph did have uh, three children and they, in their turn, had many descendants. And so uh, some people will question the, the, the cage's curiosity aspect. Is it, is it really proper and humane to, to make a spectacle out of this, basically a, a tool of uh, torture and, and, and humiliation that had been used against someone's ancestor, especially considering that th- her, the murder wasn't gratuitous. She was basically defending herself against a violent husband. Did she ever confess to the murder? If she did, it was basically a forced confession. I do recall having read an article one time uh, by a modern... Um, a, a, a modern lawyer and I just wish I remembered her name and she had concluded that if this case uh, were to be brought to court today it would have actually been dismissed uh, for lack of actual proof because everything was circumstantial according to what people would say and so on and there's so many contradictory uh, eyewitnesses uh, including one who swore he saw three people leave the barn including one that was bloodied so it, it's it's really hard to tell. Was she the, the one who actually did the act? Now, we do know that she wanted to get rid of her husband. She had been approaching people to at least give him a good lesson, not necessarily kill him. But 
that is unfortunately the the, the problem with uh, primary sources that are written uh, especially in this case it's fascinating to know that like the 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 court documents which by the way were not found in Canada but actually back in uh, uh, back in England uh, in the in the 1940s by one of her descendants all the documents are nearly completely in English even though the occupying uh, British force were in a French country, essentially. So one wonders how much uh, of the court uh, had trouble understanding the, the cross-examinations because of the language barrier. Right. right. And I was wondering, too, how the locals would have reacted to the British coming in and, and making decisions about what, what was to happen to her. Uh, it, it harkens back to what I was saying about how even the British were kind of embarrassed by uh, by the gibbet once peace was declared because uh, as much as they had been really imposing uh, basically an iron fist in, the, in their ruling just to keep the peace, well, once the colony became British, the idea was to try to make friends as fast as you could so you wouldn't okay. have that uh, that friction between the British and French Canadians. I'm curious about how her case became sort of associated with the folklore of uh, being sort of a, a female version of Bluebeard where, you know, where, how did, did you, in your research, did you happen to note when these stories about her being responsible for multiple husbands uh, stacking up, you know, like, you know, to large Twelve. numbers? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, like how, how did you find any pattern about when that started to sort of accrete around her story? Basically, everything starts uh, after uh, after the discovery of the cage, where you have people that at first are just basing themselves on what their their grandparents remembered, and then from then it just takes on a literary life of its own. For example, many people will, will always say, "Oh yes, La Corriveau, the witch that was put in a gibbet." She, she never was a witch. Ironically, as as a a, a colleague of mine, uh, Stephanie Pettigrew in uh, in Acadia, put it. Canada's most famous witch wasn't a witch at all because these are all elements from, uh, from literature that were added much later in the late 19th century. Yeah. Yeah. And as I had mentioned earlier, the story has snowballed so much. The cage once it had disappeared into the U S people forgot about the cage having actually existed, but the story remained to the point where people didn't even believe that this was a true story to begin with. It, it really became pure legend. And so people just ran with it. There was no, there's no case to be made of, 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 of having any, uh, purely historical inquiry into the story. Uh, and in fact, as you'll recall earlier, when I mentioned that was one of her descendants, uh, in the 1940s who, he went to England to find the original court documents precisely on a quest to prove that the story of her execution was true because this is also in a time where genealogy was kind of becoming quite popular in, in, in French Canada. And he, so people knew they were descendants of this woman, but without necessarily knowing the, the, the true details. And so it's really from the 1940s that we, we finally were able to say, no, no, she only had two husbands. She didn't have 12 and so on. Oh, she she really became a, an icon in popular folklore, uh, not only through oral history, but also on the Quebec literary scene, either, uh, people would write books about her, uh, entirely, or she would be, uh, have it, she would have a supporting role. I'm trying to remember the author's name. He had written a, a novel named the golden dog where 
uh, all of a sudden that Corivo, she's not a 30 year old, uh, young woman. She's actually an old crone who, who basically poison, sells poison to people and to, to, uh, spurned lovers and so on. Uh, and even to this day, you, you see the figure of Marie-Joseph Corriveau being, uh, commandeered and transformed again and again, where you had nationalists, uh, during the, uh, uh, Quebec, uh, referendum periods, uh, trying to show her as look at the injustice, uh, brought upon by, by the British putting our people in, in cages and so on. Then you have people trying to put a, a feminist slant going, uh, look at this, this victim who was just protecting herself from a violent husband who ends up being punished for having defended herself. And so it's fascinating how La Corriveau turns from a historical figure to a boogeyman to a national symbol to a feminist symbol. And today we're, we're, we're coming full circle right back to the historical person. Thanks to the cage having been rediscovered again. So it's this weird perennial, uh, lie, the many lies of La Corriveau, if we can call it that. And it's, it's just such a fascinating character because she, uh, she combines two historical regimes, the French and British regime. Uh, mm. she combines folklore and history, uh, and, and so on. It's, it's just one of those like linchpin characters of our history that, that even though she was your average person really, uh, just has like a, this extraordinary afterlife in, in the, uh, the, uh, popular consciousness. Yeah. yeah. Just being looked at it through the lens of different ears. Yeah. And in fact, just, just a fun fact, uh, a few years ago, Canada for three years in a row had their haunted Canada postage stamps. And I believe their last year of doing that, they, they actually had La Corriveau on a Canadian stamp. So you can actually send mail with <laughs> La Corriveau and her, and her gibbet. Wow. Yeah. Who would have thought? What a strange story. It, it is. Yeah. Isn't she, uh, there, aren't there ghost sightings of her today and, or she, uh, manifests as a poltergeist. Oh, there's always that rumor. It's, it's funny. If it, and here's, here's the funny thing too, uh, is that I should mention that, uh, I really love La Corriveau because I've spent the past 10 years. I, I've been in Quebec for 10 years and for 10 years I've worked at the ghost tours of Quebec. Uh, and every night we would tell her story. And what was fascinating is that I would constantly have people from the South shore going, yes, I know the story. We used to talk about it as a kid and I, there's always someone's family member who swore they saw, uh, they saw the ghost or whatnot. It's, it's interesting to know what skeptically speaking, what came first, the chicken or the egg as skeptics, we can probably argue there is a, uh, there is one direction, but uh, in popular folklore, you, you will see that La Corriveau comes back as her witch form because she wants to hang out with other witches, do the witch Sabbath and so on. There's, You'd think she'd be done was, with hanging out at this point. There are stories of, uh, also where werewolves would come howling under her gibbet uh, for her to come out and, and come celebrate the, the black Sabbath and so on. And in fact, if uh, anyone is interested in reading one of the original stories uh, having to do with her, I would strongly suggest reading The Canadians of Old by Philip Aubert de Gaspé. I'm doing my best English pronunciation of his name. Uh, he was basically our earliest French-Canadian novelist. And he, would, he, he basically wrote a book that was a, 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 a mishmash of 
childhood memories of, of what his elders would tell him through oral history and whatnot. And he, he basically just created the, this anthology with a, a single common thread of, of two characters interacting with each, with each other. But point is, there's a, there's a whole chapter, and in fact, there's two chapters dedicated to La Corriveau, and you can actually search for it on uh, archive.org. Oh, cool. Yeah, we should put yeah, a link yeah. to that in the show notes. Just a, a little side question. I'm curious about her three children. So uh, they were, um, they survived and they continued and had their own children. And so far, um, so far as we know. And in fact, what's interesting is that uh, Marie Joseph had uh, eight siblings, and she's the only one who reached adulthood. And she herself only had three children. And we, we're not sure if. She had any other children because they don't appear in the, uh, uh, in the birth records because if she did have a, for example, a miscarriage or, a, or if a, a child died, uh, shortly after birth before being baptized, they probably would have buried the, the, the child without bothering to, to go, uh, notify the church because at this point this, the child was seen as, as unbaptized and beyond that church sacrament. But uh, as far as I recall, I, I do believe her children, if not all, uh, there, there are many Corrivos today descended from her. Now I don't have mm-hmm. the exact numbers, but we do know that she had many descendants. So I, I wish I had actual numbers and, and name who had the most descendants, but unfortunately I can't. I'm glad she was able to live on through them anyway. Yes. So, you know, we like to finish our interviews with uh, this sort of signature question. What's your favorite monster, Joe? Oh, it's in my head, I always have like that holy trifecta where I love werewolves. I absolutely love werewolves. And I'm also lumping in the uh, Beast of Gévaudin in there. Like, I'm just nuts about that story. Um and movie-wise, I love the creature from the Black Lagoon, but but uh, for the occasion, I will name Bigfoot, and this is why. So uh, so we're Dece- uh, we're in December, and last year, unfortunately, my mother passed away. Aww. But I was lucky in finding. Thank you. I, I was lucky in finding the, this uh, uh, amongst her documents. There is a a, uh, a clipping. I, I'm amazed she act- she had actually kept that. It was a clipping uh, uh, from a magazine, and it was my earliest memory of Bigfoot, where I think I was like five or six or something like that. So for anyone in Canada, if you remember Owl Magazine, I have no idea if it still exists, but it was a nature magazine for kids, and it was a little clipping explaining Bigfoot, uh, just an excuse to praise my mother for having fed my, my, my cryptozoological needs as a kid without telling me. Uh, I was fascinated by this. It's just like one paragraph with a, with a sketch of like, oh yes, there's apparently this ape like man creature running around in the woods. She went to the library, took out all the books she could on Bigfoot. And, uh, the, my, my favorite one, when I was a kid, uh, if anyone remembers monster mysteries, it was a, a book by, uh, I believe it was, uh, Rupert Matthews. And it was wonderfully illustrated. And just every night, my mom would read that book with me. And just got me hooked on Bigfoot. And just for that, I, tonight I have to love werewolves, love Creature from the Black Lagoon, but tonight it's definitely Bigfoot just because of that. Oh, that's awesome. Great choice. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think, you know, even as much as my mom, uh, you know, really, I think, frowns on a lot of this stuff. <laughs> she, <laughs> she, my mom. Yeah. She, she did take me to go see King Kong. And I, I can't even imagine 
what kind of ridiculous begging I must have done to warrant that. <laughs> so, but I still have a really great memory of her taking me to go see the the uh, was it seventy six version of King Kong, the, the Dino De Laurentiis version, uh, and uh-huh. uh, it's just those when your mom or your dad takes the time to indulge your monster taste. It's it's a really big deal. See King Kong, I had like a reverse experience where. Uh, what's that version of King Kong where like the like I think it's like King Kong two or whatever where they give him like an artificial heart and bring him back and oh that's uh yeah, it's like uh it's uh the it's it's actually the what King Kong lives I think because he uh, hooks up uh, with uh, they had like uh, his girlfriend like yeah, a, yeah there's something a, he has a son or whatever which was actually I think just a chimpanzee <laughs> but point point is like I was I remember watching that as a kid. And at one point, like King Kong just starts eating people or whatever. And my mom's like, oh my God. And she just like ran up, covered my eyes. Like they're just garbage bags. It's kind of dear. It's just special effects, but I don't want you to see this. <laughs> <laughs> I remember my mom uh, taking me to see E.T. And I, was, I think I was about four or five at the time when it came out. And, uh, and then afterwards I, I was seeking some kind of reassurance that aliens didn't exist, but no, no, no. She convinced me that well, she tried to, reassure me or not reassure me uh, by telling me that aliens certainly did exist. So I hated <laughs> E.T. Oh my God. Could not stand. <laughs> See, you know how like kids have like that monster under the bed or whatever. I had, there was like this little room right next to the, the or right next to the bathtub where we had the hot water heater. And every time I would take my bath alone as a little kid, I would always imagine E.T.'s long fingers just sticking out from that little room, ready to strangle me. Just, Yikes. Ugh, it just freaked me out. Oh, did uh, not like, did not like E.T. as a kid. I liked him all right until the Atari game came out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, Joseph. Thank you so much for listening to no, the show no. and for joining. No. Thank you. I think it's been great to talk about a lesser known character. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with historian Joseph Gagne about the Quebec folkloric figure known as Le Corvo. Check out our show notes at monstertalk.org for more information about her, plus some photos that Joseph shared with us of the location where her body had been gibbeted. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed here are those of myself and my guests and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Longtime listeners to Skeptoid and also to our colleague podcasts often ask, what can I do? We all believe in the value of critical thinking and of the intellectual tools that help us tell fact from fiction. But we don't always know how to best spread those tools to others. 
Well, let me offer one easy and effective option. Skeptoid Media, that's us by the way, is currently in production on a feature documentary titled Science Friction about how the media abuses its science experts by misquoting them or editing them out of context, exploiting their reputations to promote sensationalized news or fake documentaries promoting debunked alternative histories. Part of our mission as a nonprofit is that we will retain educational rights to give this movie free to teachers worldwide, alongside complete, professionally produced educational materials to bring formalized lessons in critical thinking and scientific skepticism directly into classrooms. To retain those rights, we're crowdfunding the initial production. We're just about halfway to our goal right now, which you can see at sciencefriction.tv. You want to know what you can do to give the tools to students? This is it. We're asking a basic contribution of $100. If you're on the team, now's the time to take the field and play ball. Please come to sciencefriction.tv and make your tax-deductible donation to Science Friction. We ask $100, but any amount helps. Donate enough, you can even become an executive producer and get a legitimate screen credit. ScienceFriction.tv. Watch the promo and see our stories. Monster Talk theme music by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks for listening. that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. Joseph, uh, you've heard the show before, so you probably know where we're Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> in fact, I'm having a fanboy moment right now. I'm like, I can't believe I'm on the show. <laughs> oh. Well, let's just skip the last question then. Oh. Maybe. That hurts. That hurts. <laughs> I am now your favorite monster, Joseph. I am now your favorite. No. <laughs> <laughs> Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.